Hi, this is Chantel Schieffer, President and CEO of Leadership Montana. Views and opinions shared by guests of Listen First Montana do not reflect the opinions of all of our alumni or organization. We are a large group with lots of opinions, believe me. If you hear something that makes you uncomfortable, we invite you to listen deeply, listen hard, and listen first. Welcome to Listen First Montana, a podcast of Leadership Montana. I'm Eric Halverson. This week, I'm in R. Lee, a small town situated in the beautiful Jocko Valley on the southern end of the Flathead Reservation. And I'm speaking with Dr. Mary Stranahan, who made this area her chosen home in 1981. Mary has a fascinating background. She grew up in Ohio, taught high school in Philadelphia, and later made her way through medical school. She was drawn to rural, mountainous areas with a significant need for a physician. After a six-month search through the Mountain West for a place that fit that description, she landed at Mission Valley Hospital in St. Ignatius, Montana, and has been in the area since. Mary is also a philanthropist and the founder of both Good Works Ventures and the High Stakes Foundation two distinct organizations working to address issues like climate change, rural economic development, local agriculture, leadership, and so much more. We'll hear from Mary about those two organizations that she founded, her history in the Jocko Valley, and much more. This is um, a super special podcast episode for me uh, because... And me. (laughs) Because... Mary and I graduated Leadership Montana together in 2016, um, and we became buddies. And <laughs> um, I actually targeted you. Did you? Yeah, just because I said that's I. I had this vision of you and I jitterbugging or something, <laughs> some bar or something. So we're sitting here um, in your living room in the Jocko Valley in Arley, Montana, which for me is, Mary, has always been just a drive-through, right? I'm my way to Glacier or the Flathead Lake or something, and we're looking at the Jocko River, which I've never spent any time looking at. Let's start by talking about where we are and your connection to the place. I have a huge connection to, the, to this valley, and I only moved here in 2002. I've been in other places on the res. And the reason is because we are uh, about a 50-50 community of Native American and non-Native, and every other town on this res is a majority white, and the racism is rampant up here, but because I'm at a 50-50, we have a lot of cross-cultural exchange and, and respect for each other, and that's why I am so firmly ensconced in this valley. You've been here for how long? I moved here in 1981. Yeah, so let's work back from there. You were born in Toledo? I was born in Toledo, Ohio. Okay. T- tell me tell me more. Just get, get us to 1981. Okay. Uh, I'm number five of six, and... Grew up there. Uh, we have misspent time in Colorado all through my youth in both skiing and fishing and hiking. So when I finally, can I skip right to medical at this point? Hey, you do your thing. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I bombed out of, I think I graduated from the University of Michigan with about a 2.2 GPA. Maybe it was a 2.1. And then when I decided I wanted to go to med school because I was getting my ass fired at the Philadelphia School Without Walls because I'd, uh, I'd reported my boss to the school board because he'd come in drunk one day and beat up a kid. And so he'd been to this, in the school system for 22 years. He said, I'm going to eat your lunch, which he did. <laughs> so... You mentioned that on a previous podcast. So, so like a classic example of of just someone with much more power exerting that, just wielding totally. that over you? Yeah, absolutely. He knew the system. I was very wet behind the ears. Only I'd never taken an education class in my life. Although I, I, the reason I went into medicine, I fell in love with the kids. 
as punishment, he made me teach medical careers my last year. So which meant because we were a school without walls, we went all over the city talking to nutritionists and nurses and mental health and witness surgery and all that kind of stuff. And so when I knew I was going to get fired, I said, well, I love one-on-ones with my kids. I definitely want a body of knowledge because I was in a job that I didn't have a body of knowledge and I wanted power. And I, because of that experience, I went, I think I want to be a doctor. So I had to go to pre-med cause, and have, had to score a 4-0 because of my previous time at the University of Michigan going to the Detroit racetrack. And, uh, and I did. Wait, 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 wait. You, you, you attribute your 2.1 GPA to time spent? No, well, and partying. <laughs> and partying. Can we just take like 20 seconds to talk about partying and going to the racetrack? Like, what is that? What is going to the racetrack? I don't even, what does that mean? Oh, the problem with the Detroit racetrack, this is, I graduated from Michigan in December of 67. And uh, the Detroit racetrack was run by the mafia. But I had a neighbor in my apartment who, that's how he was making his way through the world is betting at the Detroit racetrack. So he taught me how to read the daily racing form. And so I'd go with him. And I was, I loved it until I watched the jockey who was about to win pull back on his horse. And I went, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Mm. Someone (laughs) with a finger on the scales. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so getting pre-med, I went back to my hometown of Toledo, went to the University of Toledo, got my my pre-med out. It took me two years and then applied to medical school. And there was a medical school in Toledo that I applied to, and they asked me for an interview. And all the women that were interviewees saw the psychiatrist for the interview, and all the guys saw a variety of other doctors. It kind of pissed me off. And this is in 1974. So that's the times of, you know, we still have misogyny, but it was particularly bad then. Anyway, I ended up going to an osteopathic school in Missouri. I knew nothing about osteopathy. I, I loved it because it felt like an extra tool in your toolbox to be able to manipulate bodies. And then I, then I went to internship and then said, okay, I was, think I was 34 or so when I graduate, if I finished my internship. And I went, okay, I want to go, because I'd had my city experience, I wanted to go rural mountains where you were needed. So I went to Colorado, because that was old stomping grounds. And Telluride was the only town that fit that criteria at that time, and I happened to have shared in a piece of property in Telluride, I knew it was a cocaine town. I didn't want to be a beginning physician in a cocaine town. So because I could afford it, I got in my car and I said, well, I don't know anything about Wyoming or Montana or Idaho or Washington or Oregon and, and the Sierra Nevadas in California. They all have mountains. Let me go check them out. So I spent six months driving around looking for towns with a white H and a blue background and knocked on doors and said, do you need a doctor? And I got run out of some towns. I had one nurse director who said, we don't deal with people like you if you have a DO. And um, I came over the Ravalli Hill on a cold February morning when the mountains happened to be out, which is unusual in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. And there was that white H with the blue background. And I knocked on the door and they block tackled me. And so you were a doc in, the, in a hospital setting mm-hmm. the majority of your career? I wanted to uh, deliver babies, and I wasn't confident enough to do home deliveries. Mm. So, And then so the first hospital you did work at was? Mission Valley Hospital okay. in St. Ignatius. In St. Ignatius. And did you live here? In- I actually lived in halfway between St. Ignatius and Ronan, and then I moved to Dixon. And then when I retired, I moved here. I'm just really fascinated, too, to if we can color this in a little bit, because 
I think your background is champion spark plugs, right? I don't. That's right. My grandfather and and uh, his brother founded the company in 1904, I think. Mm-hmm. And then when World War II hit, they were raking it in because they were doing aviation spark plugs. Oh sure! Wow. So. Wow. Tell me like how that, how you engaged with that wealth in your family, like how you, how you thought of that when you were sort of making your own stamp as a physician and looking for your own place. Well, I was embarrassed to be wealthy as a kid Mm -hmm. and I went to a private school and it was called, uh, what was it? Oh, I can't remember what it was, but it was a derogatory term for wealthy kids. And, um, but I'd always been involved in philanthropy my entire life because we had a family foundation. So I was always a part of that from a wee one on. You were looking around probably very fired up about social justice. Oh, about totally. Yeah. I totally embraced the 60s. <laughs> say more. <laughs> Please say more. Well, so um, I hung out with the Black Panthers in Boston. I dropped acid. You name a drug except heroin, and I tried it. And um, what else? Did a lot of protests and landed in jail in Boston for a couple hours. Um, you know, that's what you did in the 60s. This is Vietnam time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after Kent State, which is where the four kids, I think it was four kids got shot, and killed, um, that was the end of any faith in the government. Well, the nice thing is my mother was an Eleanor Roosevelt Democrat, so mm. from cradle on I bought into the activism and doing good good deeds. I want to talk about the roots of your sort of engagement with the idea of ideas of power and equity. And I mean, obviously your story as a teacher in Philadelphia being at you know the mercy of somebody else's power, Mm-hmm. Right, but then also being a child of the '60s and uh, and from a silver spoon family. Yeah, so talk about that. I attribute a lot of that to that school experience. There was the way you got into this particular school was by lottery. So you name a class and a race and a culture, we had them, mm-hmm. and we were because. We were a school without walls. We could be pretty free with our curriculum. We had some heavy race discussions. And so, and I'd already worked somewhat in the uh, African-American community in my hometown, too, on economic development stuff. So, um, in fact, those kids taught me a lesson that allowed me to live in Montana, if you want me to jump a little bit. When I got here, the way you got interviewed in, in uh, 1981 in a rural town, wherever the hell you were, was they'd ask you to take a night shift so that the doc who was of the town could sleep. Mm-hmm. And then they would check with the nurses the next day and find out how you did. And the first night I heard about you goddamn drunk Indian and you goddamn white honky, I'm going, holy mackerel, it is wide open here. Mm. And what those kids in in Philadelphia, the black kids, taught me was they. this was the last wave of the northern migration up. So my kids' families were from Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia. And those kids hated it in Philadelphia because they couldn't read the signs. It was too subtle, the racism. And so when I got up here and I went, oh, this is wide open, I the only reason that I could think to stay here was because those kids had, said they wanted to go back to open racism. I went, well, I'll give it a crack. I'll give it a try. They preferred racism that was out in the open than racism that was hidden behind subtlety. That is correct. 69 and 70 and it was as you know in those years it was rough down in the south that much i do know but the but the veneer of tolerance was rougher to these kids it does racism in montana i mean you were talking about um 
So you're obviously changing the type of race. I mean, I guess it's all the same type of racism, but you were racism towards native or excuse me, towards African Americans. And now here in Montana, it's targeted at native Americans. Native Americans. I knew nothing about native American history, culture, or anything when I moved up here. Mm-hmm. And so, and up in St. Ignatius, you were a, a little bit more than half Native American and a little bit less non-Native in your practice. That's who you were seeing, which meant you have to walk an extremely fine line of where you're at. I mean, you always have to be honest. So if somebody is talking about a a drunken Indian, I'm going to call him on it. But otherwise, you're, you got to be careful. So you have neighbors. So we're sitting in your living room, and you have neighbors, presumably, you said it's 50-50, who are Native American, right? I do. So talk to me about your experience of, like, integrating into the community and how you learned cult- the history and the culture that you said you weren't aware of. I... <laughs> One of my first nights in uh, working ER was after I got hired. There had been two car accidents, one with the kicking horse family and one with the kicking woman family. Oh. And, you know, and the tradition up here, if, you, if a family member's in the ER, the entire family descends on the ER. So, um, obviously, pre-COVID, <laughs> I got my kicking horse and kicking women all mixed up. And as to who was a horse and who was a woman, <laughs> they just started laughing. The humor in the Native American culture is amazing. And so by being humble and dumb, people undertook it to, to um, teach me some. And then ultimately I ended up taking a Native American history class from one of my top charismatic teachers in my life at Salish Kootenai College. I feel like if we're looking for a cultural competency in Montana for, you know, white folks like myself, you and I, the most important one to build really the most urgent in my face is about Native American culture. That's right. Right. So yes. like, how do, what tips do you have for folks to build that? Take knowledge? a Native American history class. Cause it, then you'll see, how horrendously our government treated these people. Mm-hmm. It's it's really worthwhile because you don't know the half of it, even though you know some. How did that influence the way you practice medicine? I don't think it did. When did it start to feel like home? Right away. <laughs> I just really? loved it, yes. Be- and the reason why is... I'm telling the bad stuff about Montana, but there's a wonderful thing about Montana, and that's neighborliness. Mm. And so I go into the grocery store up in St. Ignatius and buy a quart of milk, and it would take me 45 minutes to get out of there. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm a chatterbox anyway, so I loved it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So is there, Mary, is there anything else you want to say about your experience as a physician? I mean, so I'll color in that in a little bit and say that um, when I was in leadership Montana with you, we went to uh, Salish Kootenai College. And there was a really powerful story told by the staff, by Native American staff. Anna Sorrell. Can you tell us about that story? Uh, I think she told you guys that I'd saved her husband's life, which Mm -hmm. I did. Because he was so goddamn drunk, he was quitting. He was stopped breathing, mm. and it was it's a sim- that's pretty simple thing to treat. <laughs> There's no shot that's going to take that alcohol out, so you sit there and breathe for him. Oh, but apparently it was shameful enough to him that he went and got treatment. He cleaned himself up. Yeah, it's it's uh, a. Practicing medicine on on uh, this reservation, and and once you've been on one reservation, that's all the only reservation you've been on. So I can only speak about the Salish Kootenai reservation. This is um, very similar to ghetto medicine. People are broke. 
there's domestic violence, drug abuse, um, self, all sorts of self abuse. And so it's, it's tough to not be hanging by your fingernails sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that, um, you know, I work with a bunch of family Oh, you've medicine seen medicine docs. Yeah. Well, I just the one thing that I think about is in rural settings, especially the family medicine doc is you know you're also the mental slash behavioral health therapist in that setting, right? You're called upon to treat the entire. I figured that ninety percent of my practice was from the shoulders up. Yep. Pretty much, I hated sewing people up. I hated doing surgery on people. I didn't like ER. I didn't like all that drama, but I loved the family experience of seeing multi-generations, and I just loved it. Tell me a story that you like that really sticks out in your career of influencing multiple generations of a family and seeing them sort of change their trajectory. I've got an easy story for you. Uh, when Jor, which is a company just south of Ronan, build a big manufacturing plant to build better screwdrivers. They hired a lot of local people. They grew very rapidly. And people were getting, at that point, more livable wages. They started off at seven fifty an hour. This is back in the 80s. And I watched the uh, domestic abuse and self-abuse go down because people had a steady job with a steady income. And that that changed my life to some extent in that I am totally into economic development now. So so let's transition to that. Okay. Let's start talking about that. So you sort of stopped practicing medicine what year? In 2001. Maybe 2002. Uh, you know, give me a age break here. <laughs> and then, and then um, it was High Stakes Foundation before Good Works Ventures or which came first? They came simultaneously. Uh, back in 2006, I was, you know, I was flailing around what to do in my retirement except for the LGBT work. I ended up farming here myself. And although I hired somebody to manage the farm, but I would work the farmer's market, and which is, by the way, exhausting. And... Um, and so I went to a conference called Play Big, which was for wealthy people. It was put on by a Canadian woman on climate change is right on our doorstep. We need to get the money out the door. And what is your life plan? And, and so you had to present your life plan to somebody and, and um, to three, three people who were listening to you. And they say, said, you need an organizational development person. I went, I don't even know what the heck that is. And they said, well, we got somebody we'll recommend to you. So she came out in 206 and said, it was on this window here, all these sticky notes of all the activities I was in. And she said, you need to focus. You need to get a, you need to get a CEO and to focus. And she, through her three-day process of, squeezing me through a sieve focused me and I ended up uh, it took us a year to find Don McGee who was the CEO of both High Stakes and Good Works Ventures and that's I that's when we formed it is when she came on board if I recall and we've been going ever since but a high focus on, well, there's a reason we call it Good Works Ventures. We're supposed to be doing good work. And then high stakes, thanks to the Canadian, is about climate change. I want to make sure I understand this right. So you stopped practicing medicine in 0102 ish and then um, in the interim until 2006 when you had someone come and fo- help focus you. Mm-hmm. You were farming and doing, but meanwhile, you were sitting on some inherited wealth, right? That yes. you were, and were so you? I, I, well, I was still participating in the family uh, foundation, so I, okay. I didn't see any need to form my own at this point. I, although I was doing a lot of my back pocket funding of various organizations in Montana, like Montana Human Rights Network and stuff, and uh, Pride, which we had a Pride 
office in those days and you know things like that so, and i was being on boards of things and yeah i was busy you were doing a lot of stuff and I, then... but it was i would i call it a little bit my flailing phase because i hadn't didn't have the focus right so okay. tell me about like what is the purpose of high stakes and good works how are they different well the high stakes is a foundation, so it's a 501c3, and GoodWorks Ventures is an LLC, so it's uh, for profit. And we were basically, for a good seven or eight years, investing in startups, businesses. And because Dawn's business background and brilliance, she was doing, not only were we investing money, but we were investing Dawn's brains into those startup activities. And so subsequently, she knows hundreds more people than I do in Montana at this point in time. And high stakes was around, we have several buckets. We've got rural economic development, which is really about food systems and investing in local food systems. So, um, and we do social justice, we do climate change, but fairly trying to make big changes like we worked with climate uh, solutions in Seattle to keep the coal in the ground here thought okay that's the way to fight climate change why is rural economic development really about food systems it isn't totally that at all well that's what we have mostly donated funds to is to local food systems so like we oh. invested in a chicken slaughtering place in Hamilton oh. only it was a grant not an investment um, there's an interesting we're going to invest in this uh, producers partnership that's in Livingston um, this this cycle in our grants because this rancher is a disruptor he is raising money to buy three mobile processing units he's putting them on his ranch and he is figuring he's going to market to all the ranchers around here that it's economically better for the rancher to donate their culled cows than to sell it sell the cow you know cull means that they're not they're not having babies they need to get be gotten rid of mm -hmm. it's so the, the ranchers will make more by getting that tax break on a donation than they would by selling the culled cows and he is offering, once he gets his all his money for his slaughter units, he will feed every school in Montana hamburger and all the food banks hamburger for free. That's a disruptor. Not only is it a disruptor to philanthropy, it's a disruptor to the ranch community, making them think differently about what to do with their cows they don't want. Is that fundamentally you think why you got really excited about refocusing in 2006 and starting these two organizations was that you could help be an incubator right for these disruptive well it's when i went up to that conference in uh canada and i saw this woman carol newell is her name i got to give her credit she opened up her books and her staff to the 20 of us that were there and she said, here's what we've done over the last 13 years. And the thing that sold me on this is the right way to do a not-for-profit and a for-profit, so I modeled everything after her, mm -hmm. was when they started talking about preserving the last of the temperate rainforest up on the coast, she lives in British Columbia, and put the uh, First Nations at the front of the table with uh, lumber companies, provincial government and federal government and nonprofits with First Nations at the head, I went, okay, that's effective. That's what I want to be, effective. So that's where I got the focus part. I went, okay, I, I just want to adopt this model and bring it to Montana. I think Montana is doable. So to, I, I, I want to make sure I understand when you pointed and said that's effective. What Was it just about the fact that the right people are at the table, or is, is there more that? they to that? put First Nations at the mm -hmm. head of the table. That was the big, because, of course, I've been practicing on a reservation, so I 
get this around the power dynamics of First Nations or here indigenous. And I went, okay, that's the right way to go. And now um, high stakes or good, excuse me, good works. I'm going to get those. Well, hang on. Let me, we babied another organization, which is called Good Works Evergreen, which is, we're not Mm -hmm. doing very much with Good Works Ventures anymore. But Dawn, let's see, about four years ago saw, she she would spend some time in Hamilton. She saw that there was a company that was making canvas for boats and, you know, regular things to cover boats and stuff like that. And the owner had a sudden heart attack and 10 employees lost their jobs. So that was the impetus for her to come up and say, let's buy businesses where the owner is retiring so we keep the jobs. It comes back to my jaw experience up here where jobs changed the system. Mm-hmm. When Eric asked me to do this, I wanted to have Dawn in on this too so we could talk about this because we now have 53 employees, I think, maybe 65. I, I don't have the exact numbers. Yeah. We have a huge payroll. And when we bought these businesses... Um, given Montana values, nobody ever pays their employees enough. So we bumped everybody's salaries up to at least 15 bucks an hour. We provided health insurance. Some of the employees said, I don't need that stuff. <laughs> but wow. we did it anyway. And now they all have 401ks. So not only have we saved jobs, but we would improved the quality of life. Do you think that early on in your career you would have ever seen yourself doing this kind of stuff? No. No way. I was always going to be in the nonprofit world. Yeah. So if you could go back and start your career over and start like <laughs> digging into the biggest impact opportunities, where do you think you would what do you think your path would look like? I've never thought of that question. I I have loved every experience in my life. I mean, Pretty much. And I think every one of them made me grow. I'm not sure what I'd cut out at this point. I do want to ask what compelled you to go to Leadership Montana when you did. I didn't know very much about... Uh, the rest of Montana, I know I knew Western Montana really well, but I didn't know anything about, and that's what I think was the best gift for me in leadership Montana, was learning about how other towns solve their problems. How about for you, tell me about that, that, that process of, you're a person of strong opinions, right? And like, and a lot of drive for social justice issues, you're heavily involved in politics. Right, so sitting at a table with people, going through that hard exercise of sitting at a table with people with very different opinions than you, very different backgrounds than you, and engaging in conversation honestly, like, I, and listening first. How was that for you? I, I've sat at the table with lots of very different opinions, but I haven't sat at a table with the amount of divisiveness politically that we have right now. I have not reached across. I reach across routinely to Republicans that I know and ask, and I ask them questions. Yeah. But they're my local friends. Interesting. I think you're such a fascinating person to ask this because frankly, like, you know, 100% honest here, Mary, you just, I don't think you have a tolerance for any bullshit, right? I mean, at (laughs) at this stage in your life too, right? Like especially. That's right. You're just not in it for nonsense. I can't imagine you sitting in a conference room where nonsense is being espoused and wasting your time on that. I hate that. I absolutely hate that. Can you tell me about like how you like arriving at that stage in your life and your career where you just don't want to waste time at all? Well, this is a personality defect. I I am lacking (laughs) patience and that's been true all my life. So although when I was younger, I was more submissive to it. (laughs) I think with age, you get less submissive to the BS factor. (laughs) Mm. 
but is that is that a double edged sword? Probably. I'm probably shutting people off that I shouldn't, is my guess. Yeah. What's the good side of it though? You I don't have to sit them? I don't have so much fanny fatigue. <laughs> you getting fanny fatigue right now on this podcast? No, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I got asked to be chair of a of a committee that's going to be doing a strategic plan for a board that I'm on and and we started with the mission statement and the thing I hate the worst is words wordsmithing yeah. it just drives me up a wall to argue on which verb you just I just say well this you guys do it I, I'll settle with whatever you come up with <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask this last question before we go into the lightning round which is just over the course of your career you've you know, invested in different projects, worked on different projects, you've been face to face with patients, with kids, and you've created a lot of change and probably seen efforts to create change both fail and succeed. What is the formula for change, positive change that we can turn to? You mean how do you solve for world peace? Damn right. That's, that's what, what you're I mean. asking me. You're damn right. That's what I'm asking you. <laughs> I'm um, just looking we, for a formula I can lean on. We have to be able to listen to each other, which is what I just said. I don't do well. Um, I and that's the formula for how we make change. In my opinion, is we listen and we take in good ideas, and and move them along. Whether it's your idea or not, who gives a damn? So I'm struggling. Is there a, you're struggling. Well, I'm struggling with the polarization that we're having to deal with right now. I'm scared for our country. Me too. Yeah. Is there a spiritual element to the way you approach change and lifting other people up? That's a question I've never been asked either. Um, I think respect for all life would be my spiritual MO. So the rock out there, the Jocko River, doesn't necessarily have to be human. And that may be something I learned from the Native Americans is my guess. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. I I'll, I can't say that that's an original thought. <laughs> what stands out to you as the biggest lesson you've learned? From the, my Native American associations? Um, a couple of things. Humor. I love the humor. And I love their love of all things. I think those are the two things. I There's lots of problems in the Native American community on leadership and... Well, you know, just as in any society, we all have our downsides, too. So this is kind of a big question. Well, you've asked me about world peace. I don't know what else you can go to. I know. I'm just getting, trying to go more and more expansive on you. I keep you, keep you on your toes. <laughs> so, the, um, so I'm wondering if there's a, a story that is really defining and central to who you are that you would want to share with listeners? I would attribute it to my mother around from an early age. I was dragged to League of Women Voters meetings. I was dragged to the ballot box. I was dragged to marches. Um, And so, you know, activism and good works was part of my childhood. So. What was your mom's name? Her real name was Virginia, but everybody called her Did. Did? Did. D I D. <laughs> Who done it? <laughs> she did. <laughs> a habit you've developed that's improved your life walking yeah first thing in the morning or any time of the day it's i i i don't meditate but i'm thinking my walking is a form of meditation yeah 
I spent a lot of time walking in the valley and observing changes of flowers or animals or whatever. And it's a, it's a quieting practice. In your many trips between Arley and Missoula, what are you listening to? I actually listen to um, Sirius Radio. I listen to Tom Hartman, who uh, is a he has a three hour a day radio show from ten until one, and he's w- one of the smartest people I've ever heard. He's written twenty some books. Uh, he's extremely progressive, and I I love him. Do you cook a lot? You're cooking tomorrow night for poker night. I like cooking. What do you? I, I, I didn't necessarily always like it, but it, but for the last, you know, it's a, it's an it's another meditative practice, particularly prep cooking. You know, you're chopping the celery. You're, you know, it's a. I like it. <laughs> Favorite food. Hollandaise. Hollandaise sauce. You should see. I just made a whole pile of it last From night. From scratch. Oh yeah. For what? Well, we had a Twisted Sister meeting last night. It's a a group of wealthy women who get together periodically, and we bear our underwear, and we (laughs) cook. And so I I made hollandaise and artichokes last night. Oh, now you're talking about something. That sounds delicious. Um, If you could spend one full day doing anything, what would that be? One full day. Full day. Clean slate. Well, I just got asked a question about who would I like to most meet, and it, it falls to Eleanor Roosevelt and Mahatma Gandhi. And I would love to be walking along with them as and be a fly on the wall for however long they want to talk. <laughs> you just listen to those two. Oh, my God, yes. What is it about Eleanor Roosevelt? Her leadership. Yeah. Her leadership and her um, compassion. I need to read up on that. Do you have a quick example for me? Yeah, she went down to the coal mines, inside the coal mines where a woman is bad luck, saw the plight of the coal miners, and went to her husband and said, you got to fix this. And he supported labor union organizing because of that. Mm. Something you care about deeply that we haven't talked about. My daughter. Tell me about her. I... She's half Native American. I adopted her when she was four. Or, no, I'm sorry, I didn't adopt her. I fell in love with a woman who had her when she was, and when, and we moved in together when Tila was four. And her mom had some mental illness issues, and so we, I didn't, we should have parted company in six months, but I parted company in four years, because I fell in love with a kid, mm. and then I stayed. Uh, Montana didn't have any at that time any laws about child custody for LGBT couples, so we just went to a, a mediator and settled out. And then when Tila was about fifteen, and I said, "Do you want me to adopt you?" and she said, "Yeah, I would." And so I went to a lawyer, and she said, "Well, are you in a big hurry? Because if you wait till 18, then because she was Native American, I was not allowed as a as a non-native to adopt her." Mm. So I went, "No, I'm I'm going to be in her life, what whether she's adopted or not. It's okay." So, and I continued to be in her life. So is she she's officially your adopted. She is daughter? my officially adopted daughter. That's so special, man. I <laughs> love that. What's your new, favorite? New mother in, at age 50. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite thing about Tila? She's the exact opposite of me. So we have we have to make compromises about, for example, we never go grocery shopping together. <laughs> or clothes shopping because she has to touch everything and I know what I want. I go in and I get the hell out of there. So we, we have to set our boundaries as to our activities. <laughs> Um, so you, th- you, you enjoy being with somebody who's so different than you. It's so funny how She's that She's very methodical, very thoughtful, and takes her time in making decisions, and I'm a damn bull in the china shop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I think that's why I, I care about you so much. <laughs> Do you like the bull? <laughs> I don't that's know. That's a bull cow. By I just, the way. I just, I just have to say, I just really enjoy your like, ain't my first rodeo <laughs> attitude. You know, I just love that. Okay, that's <laughs> what you get to do when you're in your seventies. Yeah. <laughs> But also what you get to do when you've lived a life is like intentional and well and also full of serendipity too. That's a it's a key mm. piece to how rich my life has been. Yeah. That I landed at teaching in Philadelphia which impacted my entire life. Right. Even though I got my ass handed to me. But so. that started with you saying I'm going to go do I'm going to you know I don't know if this is the most meaningful thing for me to do but it feels meaningful go. And then well, it led and you. Again, that might be a privilege thing. It sure you know, might be. Yeah, yeah it, most, it most likely is. Yeah. So I could go ahead and take be a higher risk taker because of that. Mm-hmm. So, The best decision you've made in your life, what jumps out at you? Hire Don. Really? Yeah. You hear that, Don? <laughs> Mary, what gives your life meaning and purpose? Um... At this point in my life, I'm a connector, do a lot of connector work, and that gives me a lot of joy. And I'm starting to get kudos, which is embarrassing, but it's also kind of feels pretty good, too. Mm-hmm. So, To be connecting people and to see... See, see them take off, the, the, the two of them. Yeah. Form the connection. And whatever the work is that they are going to work together, it takes off because they were connected. Well, listening on that podcast interview with you and Don, hearing the story about you two sitting down and having dinner together at the Pearl and saying, oh, yeah, we can do this together. (laughs) Right? Right? Yeah. That's kind of the type of connection that you're talking about, right? That's right. That's right. Um, How about a book recommendation? White Fragility by... uh, Robin D'Angelo. If you could snap your fingers and change one thing in Montana right now, one, only one thing, because I know there's... <laughs> We'd have a Democratic Party takeover. So subtle. <laughs> <laughs> That's the bull. <laughs> We're sitting in your living room, and I don't see a TV around in here. So it's I don't know in if... my bedroom, oh, okay. and then one in front of my treadmill. <laughs> so... I have to ask a question then, TV or movie recommendation. Uh, well, I haven't seen a... I've been Netflixing like everybody else has, and I loved Outlander. Oh, I haven't watched it. It's a Scottish slash American myth thing. When you're scared, tired, or overwhelmed, where do you turn? I walk and think. Um, and, ask, and ask for help. From, get guidance from somebody. You can't do it all by yourself. Do you have a bold prediction for the future? I'm afraid I'm a little pessimistic about our future. Mm-hmm. I don't ask my daughter whether she's going to have children. One, because it's none of my business. But I think because if I was her age, I'm not sure I would have a child. Why is that? I'm not sure we're going to make it through climate change. I promise you this is the last question. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> It's so interesting to me because as I try to look out at the big landscape, the whole landscape and really understand like, okay, so where is the place to look, to really look and like, honestly, like obviously economics is so appealing, right? And policy, both of those seem just so upstream of everything else, right? It's what High Stakes is trying to do is to, you know, you have the old cliche about catching babies as they come out of the stream. Well, you ought to walk upstream and find out who the hell's throwing the babies Who's in throwing there. throwing the babies in the stream. Right, so you know, with that metaphor of moving upstream, looking what, what's upstream, and we see, to me, I see economics, I see job opportunities, I see policy. And that was obviously being super intertwined. 
but my suspicion is that even farther upstream is our ability to connect with one another, which is part and parcel with divisiveness, which you've been saying. Right. It's such a negative force right now. So should that be where we commit? Or should we be reallocating to, uh, our, re- our own be resources? Able to yeah. Sit at the same table? Yeah. And talk? You've got me. I think that's probably the only way to solve the problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, on that note, Mary, unless you have anything else to add. Well, thank you for listening to my <laughs> BS. Mary Stranahan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for Eric for doing this. It's it's been a pleasure. Thanks to Dr. Mary Stranahan for that fantastic conversation. And thanks to you for listening in. If you've enjoyed today's show and want to support Listen First Montana, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Those small steps can really help us connect these stories to more listeners. Our intro song is a rendition of the Montana State song by Scott Gudger, and our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, thanks for listening to Listen First, Montana.